Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today I'm speaking with Joshua Sinner. Josh is a distinguished professor in the social sciences at James Cook University in Townsville, Australia, and is one of the world's leading researchers on human environment interactions in fisheries, marine conservation, and coral reef systems. His research brings together a wide range of social science disciplines, including human geography, common property, anthropology, and conservation policy. He often works closely with ecologists on interdisciplinary research projects, and increasingly his research is moving beyond the case study approach towards a big picture comparative exploration of human environment interactions. This includes work with coastal peoples in the Pacific Islands, Southeast Asia, East Africa, and the Caribbean to better understand how socioeconomic factors influence the ways in which people use, perceive, and govern coral reefs. In our conversation, Josh explains his origin story connecting to marine systems, his research on coral reef bright spots, and ambitions to continue large-scale comparative analyses of human-nature interactions in fisheries. He also explains his approach to collaborative project design and implementation, and how he navigates the social networks of science and science management. Please enjoy my conversation with Josh Sinner. All right, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the origin story here. So it, it started, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, um, actually in the hills just outside of Amherst, which is a cool little college town. And, you know, in the, uh, in like 1980, my parents got divorced, right? And so a few years later, it was kind of like, you know, seeing dad on weekends and he was really looking for something that could bring us together, right? And so uh, we decided on scuba diving would be the thing that we would do. And so... Um, we went scuba diving off the coast of New England. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I won't call him cheap, but he bought me a wetsuit that would fit next year. Right. So I'm a skinny little kid in a wetsuit that's too big. And, you know, we, we I did some scuba diving, but, um, you know, I got my open water too, or advanced certification. But then, um, you know, a- after a while, I kind of gave up because New England diving just wasn't for me <laughs> at that time. Um, Many, many years later, you know, I went to, to did my undergraduate at the University of Colorado. Um, and then uh, I joined Peace Corps uh, after that. And so in the Peace Corps, they I put down in my application that I had was scuba certified. And so I ended up doing the Peace Corps in Jamaica. And um, of all the things that they did, they ended up putting me, stationing me in a coral reef marine park. Mm. It's like, uh, and so I became the kind of education coordinator for this coral reef marine park. And that's kind of where I fell in love with coral reefs and the, the complexities of, um, you know, the court of kind of corals as commons, the oceans as, as commons, um, with how complicated coral reef fisheries are. Um, there's so many different user groups and so many different interest groups. The A lot of the socioeconomic um uh, issues that that uh, were were really apparent that it wasn't really the 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 biological science that was going to solve them, but you know, in somewhere like Jamaica, where there's you know it's a post slavery society and people really valued being their own employers, you know, being a fisherman was worth more than the value of 
the, the economic value of fishing. And that was really apparent in people's attitudes and, and um, you know, the pride they took in fishing, but also the challenges that they threw towards marine parks. And so I really kind of uh, fell in love with, uh, with, with coral reefs and, and the challenges in sustainably managing them. Um, and then went on to, I did my, my master's degree in, at the University of Rhode Island with, uh, with Richard Polnack, who's the kind of godfather of quantitative maritime anthropology. Um, and so um, uh, then I moved to DC for a little while after that, uh, did a graduate um, student internship and tried to get a, a job in the field. Um, but it wasn't really working out. And I was like literally days away from just like leaving science. And just, I was working for this think tank, this futures think tank, and they really wanted to employ me full time. And it was really fun. I was like just digesting science and, and, um, uh, and translating kind of trends in science, technology and engineering for kind of middle managers to better understand how they could prepare for emerging trends. And it was, it was pretty cool. Um, but I really wanted to work in, you know, in, in, in my field, but I wasn't really landing, you know, I was, I could get jobs doing the paperwork for people doing what I wanted to do, but not actually doing what I wanted to do. And then um, I saw like my dream job working for, for WCS, the Wildlife Conservation Society. And as it turned out, the boss of that job, Tim McClanahan, had just read of one of Polnack's papers and was like, this is the approach that I want to use in this project. And because I was, I'd been a master's student and knew that approach really well, um, he ended up hiring me. Uh, so then I leveraged that. Um, so uh, that, that was a, a kind of a, a two-year um, uh, position. It was in Papua New Guinea and Indonesia, collecting socioeconomic research data as part of a team. So there was a, a, an ichthyologist, a fish guy, uh, a benthic ecologist, and a social scientist. And we were going around and doing these kind of assessments and um, uh, these, these sustainability assessments um, uh, around Papua New Guinea and, and Indonesia. And when I got that job, I kind of remembered that um, uh, in Australia, they have research only degrees. And I think a lot of listeners from America might be blown away to find out that uh, in other parts of the world, you don't have to do uh, like coursework and comps and all that stuff to get a PhD that's research only. So because I had this job doing so much research, I decided to contact James Cook University um, and um, uh, and and apply for a research only PhD, and I got a full scholarship to do that. And so um, that's kind of how I ended up here at, at James Cook University many many years ago. Now to tie this back to the 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 the, the origin story, that there's a real irony that the thing that my dad did to bring us together, which was scuba diving, is ultimately the reason that I live on the exact far side of the planet from him today. So. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. How did so? You worked early on with with Peace Corps and then with the NGOs, and then so you have kind of you've had a foot in these different types of organizations that are out there, and then that sent you to Indonesia and to Papua New Guinea, which is another question that I have: how you got into those case studies originally. So, did you think those experiences kind of allowed you to shape the program and interest that you have today? Like, how how influential have those been? So, so influential. So, you know, working with WCS has been great. And though, although I don't work for them anymore, I work very closely with them. And so uh, collaborator, collaborators like Emily Darling, who I know you've had on the show before, she's a really close collaborator of mine. We've 
published a lot together and and um, uh, I'm sure I'll tell you a little bit about this new project that I'm um, uh, I'm launching um, uh, next year. She's on the steering committee of that and so we've still got you know I've still got very close collaborations with WCS two years or sorry 20 years uh, after originally working for them so um, and that's been really really influential we've done some really exciting science and I really like um, working with groups where I can really help with the science and they can really help with the with the impact. You know, I think that the, one person can't do it all, right? And so it's it's really important to partner and choose your partners well. And so, um, you know, I've partnered with a lot of groups like that, like WCS, and I think that's really, really exciting collaboration. Yeah, also that you mentioned, like in this early field projects, you work together with uh, basically people from different disciplinary backgrounds. How influential is that for you in shaping kind of understanding how they design the type of field work that they do, what type of data they're interested in collecting. Yeah, I think it was really critical being on such a kind of a, a, a small project like that where there was not too many people, but it was really interdisciplinary because I got to see the inner workings of really what they were doing and get some ideas for how can we link this with, with the kind of things that I do. Um, and so, you know, trying to understand, well, what metrics of something like um, uh, you know, this the kind of ecosystem states and processes might be really amenable to understanding the theories of human environment impacts, you know, the kind of sociological and environmental sociology and economic theories of human environment impacts. And so, you know, that was always kind of churning in the back of my mind when I was working with them. It's like, what are they kind of collecting that's amenable to the kinds of things that that that, you know, I've been trained in and how can we link these uh, these things together. And so really spending, you know, a couple of years going from village to village with people and really understanding what they do helped out a lot. And even though I'm not an ecologist, I feel like I've got a, a, a much better understanding of of of, uh, of what they do because of that. Maybe you can give folks a bit of an overview of your interest in the types of theories that you're interested in working with mm -hmm. and how you see like, how do you pair methods to those theories and what types of methods that you tend to put into your work? So, you know, I, I can give you an example from a, um, a paper I, uh, I published last year, and it was a great collaboration with um, with environmental sociologists, geographers like myself um, uh, and, and ecologists. And in that paper, um, what we did was we essentially tested which of four main human environment theories best predicted different ecosystem states and processes on coral reefs, right? So we looked at things like, uh, you know, a Neo-Malthusian theory. So we looked at kind of like, does just raw population numbers really predict things very, very well? We looked at things like agricultural location theory, which kind of, you know, dates back um, uh, to von Thunen's uh, early work, kind of like, what is the role of proximity to markets in, in shaping agricultural landscapes? And so we kind of applied that work in marine systems um, we looked at um, uh, kind of new institutionalist common property theory. So like what types of rules and how will they, uh, how well they were complied with, how, what kind of role did that play? And then we looked at things like the Kuznets curve, right? So, so, and what, what that is for listeners that don't know is that it's a prediction that, that environmental conditions will, as societies uh, develop, environmental conditions will decline up until a point and then, um, uh, as there's improvements in kind of institutions and technologies that will reverse and, uh, and and get better. And, you know, what we found was was pretty interesting. The best single theory to predict it was really agricultural location theory, right? It was really the proximity to markets that was best 
um, uh, predicting it, but a much better model rather than either of these independent models is one with interactions between these different theories, right? And so, you know, a kind of what that got me thinking about is like, everyone's wrong, right? Or we're all right. I guess that's another way to, to think about it, right? But it's actually not as simple as people would like to make it think. There isn't a theory that really well explains it. It's really a combination of different theories that was was really explaining ecosystem states and processes on coral reefs. And that was from you know, 1,600 sites across, you know, 40 different countries globally. I see your work really positioned in this social ecological analysis, uh, yeah, approach, one could say. Uh, do you see yourself really trying to test specific theories or do you, do you see a lot of your work as kind of very heavy data driven where you want to see what comes out and try to look at more of the complexity of the configurations in these types of cases? Yeah, so I, I definitely do both. I think there's a real important need for the exploratory um, work, but and there's also a need for kind of testing and refining theories. And so I, I think we've been able to do to do both quite effectively in, in, in my group. I would say that I, I probably spend more time doing the exploratory side of it than the other, but both are, are interests of mine. Why do you think markets are such a strong predictor? Mm, right. This is really cool. So this is work that has emerged from my research over and over again, using totally different data um, at different scales in different locations. Um, and we see this real consistent pattern of kind of market proximity being really closely related to a very strong predictor of, of kind of ecosystem outcomes. And this could be anything from the biomass of fish that's on a coral reef to the size of fish that are being uh, extracted from that reef. Um, and so, you know, there's different theories as to why that would be the case. And the kind of standard, you know, um, uh, economic theory would be that you get, when you get access to markets, you get changes in price and price variability. And that can create incentives for exploitation. And, and I buy that, but I think, you know, to me, what's more, more interesting um, is a body of research that's kind of really on the outer reaches of behavioral economics and, and, um, uh, and philosophy, which gets at how the very presence of markets can actually change human behaviors in ways that actually crowd out pro-environmental behavior. And so um, I did a, a, a did a review of this research last year, working with um, sociologists again and, and, and geographers um, and, and behavioral economists to try to better understand what's the research that's been done on this this kind of crowding out space and, and the role of markets and crowding out pro environmental behavior. You know, and what we found was you know markets can crowd out people's. Uh, propensity to engage in collective action or civic duties. It can um, change people's um, uh, willingness to uh, inflict third-party or ex externalities or inflict harm on other people. People become more tolerant of that in a, in a, in a market context. Um, and it also changes people's preferences for equity and for fairness. And there's a range of studies that have done this from kind of behavioral economics where they're running experiments to uh, more observational studies as well, um, natural experiment studies uh, that's been done on, on a lot of these. So we brought kind of these different uh, theories together as a potential mechanism for why we're seeing this relationship that we do. Yeah, it brings another point that I wanted to touch on is I believe you wrote a piece called How Behavioral Science Can Help Conservation. I'm interested in your thoughts on 
I guess it's the C sharing, it could be framed as the C sharing, C sparing debate, but this idea of how we design marine protected areas and the, the underlying kind of logic of marine protected areas kind of being that, you know, we can do bad things over here as long as we do good things over here, rather than this idea that we need to couple stewardship and use in the same areas. And I think some of your some of your work, if I recall, has looked at yeah, what are some of the missing behavioral factors in marine protected area design that can be better incorporated to make them more effective? So on the first one, really, you know, when you think about the uh, the sea sparing or land sparing, land sharing a- analog in there, I think what, what we tend to see is that fisheries uh, scientists tend to be much more in the sea uh, uh, sharing and the uh, ecologists tend to be much more on the sea sparing and, and they're not really talking to each other uh, uh, very much at all. And I think that the... Um, uh, both groups tend to have some really important points, you know, so what fisheries scientists will often say is in debates about marine protected areas, there's a very flawed assumption that effort disappears, right? That that you, you're actually not just shifting the effort into areas and making those areas worse, that, that a lot of the models that ecologists develop assume that the effort outside is constant. But And that works great in places like Australia, where we've had fisheries buybacks, right? And we've actually removed the effort and that's great. This is a really different context than most coral reef protected areas. And so I think, you know, um, uh, I think the fishery scientists are pointing out something that's really important that we need to be be thinking about um, pro- probably uh, more so than we do. Um, and so, you know, we've actually tested some of that, some of the, the recent work we've been doing and and didn't really find much evidence for it, but, but um, Anyway, that's, uh, you know, that, that stuff's under uh, in, in progress. But, I, you know, I think the debate is really important. And, and where do we where do we need to land? Look, I think both things need to happen, right? We do need to have some areas. Coral reefs in particular are such that really even light levels of fishing can fundamentally change reef ecosystems. We see completely different species compositions. And I do think that we do need areas that are you know, not only no take, but probably no go. You know, what we've seen on the Great Barrier Reef is that there are some areas that they, they call them pink zones. And the amount of uh, of things like sharks in those pink zones are much, much sort uh, the, the abundances are much higher than in the green zones, which is where people are allowed to go, but are not not allowed to fish. And so, you know, I, uh, I guess what I would do, kind of circle back to answer your question is that I think there's a space for all of it. And I don't think any one model is the right model. And I think, you know, what we're going to need is, is, um, is a balanced portfolio um, to do that. And I think, you know, we, we do need to ensure that we're not just making faulty assumptions about effort just disappearing because that will actually make ecosystem conditions worse. And, you know, I think the fishery scientists have a really valid point in that. Um, And then, so your, your, I think your follow-up question is, um, was really what are some of the behavioral uh, elements missing in protected areas? And, you know, I've been working very closely with uh, a former student of mine, Brock Bergseth, um, who is now on a, um, uh, it's an early career uh, postdoc that he got from the Australian Research Council. And he works a lot on um, compliance, right? And I think the important thing um, that I've learned really working with him is, you know, compliance is not 
the uh, inverse, um, uh, or it's not, it's not necessarily just associated to enforcement, right? That there's a lot of behavioral elements. And in most cases, people comply with rules when there's no enforcement patrol out there, right? So people do the right thing because they feel like there's, you know, there's social norms that, in, injunctive norms that tell them it's the right thing to do or descriptive norms because other people do that. And so really understanding how can we better manage compliance rather than just investing in faster boats? Because that's not how we're going to improve compliance, right? Rates of detectability are so, so low that that's not what's governing compliance. And so I've been been really excited working with Brock over the years and really learning much more about how we can develop compliance management frameworks and how we can really better under, better integrate um, uh, behavior science into compliance of marine protected areas. And so that's some ongoing work we've been doing. It's a good transition into uh, the recent paper that you sent me, which is the 16-year time series uh, analysis that you did in, in Papua New Guinea, which looks at the social ecological factors of adaptive management of local reefs. Perhaps there you could you could get into maybe a couple of specifics about the role of 10-year rights, the role of leadership, um, and what you found uh, in that study. Yeah, so what I might do is start one uh, one story back, uh, which was the bright spots work that we did um, uh, that kind of preceded that, and and um, so could, uh, because that that one site was a bright spot, and so that's kind of why we got the idea to kind of go in and 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 do that really integrated social ecological study. So I'll, I'll kind of take one step back and talk about the work we did on these kind of positive deviance and then explain why that one was a positive deviant and why we, we did that um, that study. So I actually I, I heard this story that really in, uh, inspired me and it was a, it was a story delivered by Peter Kriva during a um, a keynote address at the Coral Reef Symposium uh, in I think 2008 uh, or maybe it was, it was 2012 uh, as a matter of fact and um, it was a story about uh, save the children working in Vietnam. And they were working on the nexus between poverty and childhood malnutrition. As you can imagine, these, these two issues are tightly coupled with poor children on average being more malnourished than their uh, wealthier counterparts. And what Save the Children did that I, I thought was really inspiring is they looked for what they called their bright spots. Now, these were places that, these were children that um, were poor, but were not malnourished. And so they, they went to the mothers and, and asked them what they were doing differently from other mothers in the village. And they were doing a few things, but um, uh, one of them was that they were finding little crabs and shrimp in the rice patties and they were grinding that up and putting it in the kids' rice. They were also feeding their kids three times a day instead of the customary two. Now, they weren't giving their kid more food they couldn't afford to, right? But by, by breaking the meals up into smaller portions spread more evenly throughout the day, the children were better, better able to absorb these nutrients. So Save the Children then had these, um, these mothers teach the practices to other mothers in the village and then had these villages become living laboratories for other um, villages. And they ended up reaching sort of 2.2 million households and cutting poverty, cutting childhood malnutrition by 65 percent in project villages. And that's a, wow. like a remarkable outcome, you know, just just mind boggling. And, you know, the penny didn't drop uh, immediately, but. A little while later, I was actually on a um, on a ski lift and it just like the penny dropped. And I was like, we need to do this for coral reefs like let this is the, we need to do something like this. And so um, so I decided to um, ask every coral reef scientist I knew for their life's work. And, um, you know, just, uh, scientists aren't aren't renowned for um, 
giving over their their data. But actually, as it turned out, you know, I think because I was a social scientist um, asking ecologists for data, they weren't threatened by what I was going to do. I'm never going to interfere with their core business, right? I was proposing mm. something totally left field that they were never going to do. And so they were like, yeah, that sounds great. It's real like adding value to what we do. So we got together and it was about 2,600 coral reefs from like 45 different countries, uh, countries, states, and territories. And, you know, we had this, this uh, massive amount of data and then we kind of developed a model to predict the, these bright spots. These were the outliers. You know, we were interested in reefs that were doing better than expected given the socioeconomic and environmental conditions they were exposed to, the reefs that were punching above their weight. So we needed someone with like, uh, you know, kind of Jedi level statistics. And we'd been working with uh, with Aaron McNeil, who's at, at Dalhousie University, and, and he was our uh, our statistical Jedi master. And he, he was able to create this really um, amazing model that we then used to, um, you know, uh, what was really exciting is Aaron's a real baseball fan. Right. And so he was like, what you want to do is use this is basically Moneyball, right? He's, you want to use the, the wins above replacement, which is, uh, you know, one of the ways that in baseball they calculate, you know, kind of outliers. How much better is somebody doing than you'd expect them to do given their, their circumstances? And so we, we essentially um, kind of Moneyballed coral reefs and uh, uh, created this, this, uh, this, uh, this model, which uh, predicted coral reefs and then also we could from that understand what what were the deviations from that right where are the places that were doing better than expected given the conditions they were exposed to mm -hmm. and so we found 15 bright spots we found 35 dark spots and then we found uh, we, well there's a bunch of spots that predicted with the model but one of the things we did was we compared the conditions of bright spots dark spots and and, and average spots and so um you know the bright spots um, tended to have things like deep water refuges. So they tended to be in areas where there was deeper water. Um, whereas the dark spots tended to have had a local environmental shock, like a cyclone or a coral bleaching event. Um, dark spots were also much more likely to, um, uh, to use, uh, have certain technologies used in those. And that included things like really intensive netting, which can break the the coral habitat architecture. Um, and they were more likely to have freezers that allowed people to stockpile fish to send to markets. Um, but one of the interesting things that we found was that bright spots were also more likely to have higher levels of dependence on local resources. And this kind of seemed counterintuitive to a lot of people, but it shouldn't have lower. It was like, well, no, not according to the commons literature, right? Where, you know, for decades, commons literature has shown that that where people's livelihoods depend on it, they're more willing to invest in creative solutions to solve these dilemmas. And so, so that made perfect sense to me. Um, uh, bright spots were also more likely to have um, uh, high levels of participation by local people in decision-making processes um, uh, and have certain sort of like cultural practices and taboos and tenure systems. Uh, and so that was that was what was really exciting for me because I'd been working in, in places like Papua New Guinea where these tenure systems and these customary management systems were very, very active. And so now to kind of bring it back to your, uh, your original question, you know, as it turns out in kind of serendipity, one of the, the the 16 bright spots, 15 bright spots was one of the areas that I originally started working in during that, that WCS job back in 2001. 
And it was a place called um, uh, Car Car Island, and then where I've got uh, really strong working relationships uh, today. And we, we're hoping to go back next year. We've just got some funding to do so from National Geographic Society. And so I'd had a history of collecting kind of social and ecological data over there. We'd had multiple points in time. And so we were able to go back and collect a kind of a final round of, um, and, well, not final, but another round of data uh, from there, from both social scientists and ecologists. And it was really exciting to me is that, um, uh, you know, I started working with, for example, um, uh, Michelle Barnes, who's a social network scientist. So we were able to run some, um, uh, we were able to conduct some network uh, science there. And that revealed some really interesting things that we'd never seen before. Like, for example, um, there were really strong connections between youth and elders in terms of information exchange. And that's not something she'd seen before in many, many other villages. And this was this place was kind of an outlier in the way that the the social structure of information exchange was um, uh, was was shaping uh, with really strong youth elder ties. Um, I worked with a, another former student of mine, Jackie Lau, who was also on one of these um, early career researcher awards. Um, here and she does really amazing qualitative work. So we were able to really get some of the kind of qualitative understandings of the, the processes that kind of lead to these customary systems and how people kind of deliberate and the important role of, 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 of deliberation and deciding when they have these systems in place and when they don't. And in, in CarCar, what they do is they have a rotational closure system. And so every kind of Every so often, they'll close the reef off, and it might be for kind of two years up to seven years. There's no like strict date. They don't say we're going to close it for two years and on Christmas we'll open or whatever. It's like we'll close it and then we'll catch these environmental and social feedbacks to better understand when we should um, when we should open it again. And one of the feedbacks that they look for, and it's a really interesting one, is is actually fish behavior. So we got some of the ecologists to, to look at this, right? And one of the things they kept saying was, well, when we fish too frequently, the fish get frightened, right? And it becomes harder to fish. So we were able to, to bring in some, some kind of ecological theory on that and, and, and explore. And so they have this thing, ecology called flight initiation distance, which is basically how close you can get to an animal before it flees. And so we were able to test in on Karkar Island in both closures and non-closures um, what, what, what happens, how, how close you can get to the animal. And because this is a rotational closure system where they open and close it in different locations, because we had multiple points in time, we could see for the same location what happens when you remove fishing pressure or when you add fishing pressure. And what we saw was that it actually did remove, um, well, fish became flightier when, uh, um, when, when there was fishing pressure. But the interesting thing was how much flightier they became. And they, what they did is they stayed just out of range of the average spear gun. When fishing was uh, when when fishing was allowed, and so this is the average fish from the average spear gun. So people were, did still get fish, but it was much much harder because the average the you know fish tended to stay on average further than the average spear gunner could could shoot. But they, but they were within that range when fishing was prohibited. And what this meant, though, was when a ban was lifted, right, you weren't just catching more fish because they they had grown more fish in there. You were catching a lot more fish because they had changed fish behavior such that those fish were essentially naive. 
right? And so they could really clean up and they did. They would have these big feasts and invite people from neighboring villages to come. And that was actually really, really important because in places like Papua New Guinea, your wealth isn't measured by what you own, it's measured by what you give away. So for these communities, the ability to gift fish to other people was actually really, to, to other communities was actually really, really important um, in terms of their, their ability to maintain social prestige. So there's a lot of important lessons that can be taken out of, of, of course, both the Bright Spots work, which gives a bit much larger overview and, and, and these specific case studies, which give a, more of a sense of the mechanism, social mechanisms, which which kind of create these types of outcomes, uh, both social and ecological, that we're interested in. I'd be interested in your thoughts of how some of those lessons can be taken and perhaps used to inform capacity for, for example, new marine protected area design, or to take the lessons from bright spot areas to dark spot areas uh, to kind of bridge that gap. Have you thought about that and how some of these issues or some of these these mechanisms that you did, like gifting behavior and... and tenure systems and, and strong dependence can are those social factors that you think can be yeah scaled or they're taken out or used as principles for for designing more effective marine protected areas or you know use community-based rights systems and coral reefs for example right so i guess I, yeah i guess there's two two questions in there and the first is you know were there any broad principles and the second which of those are malleable i like mm -hmm. that so um in the first one you know i guess you know, in the example that we had, this this community in, uh, on Carcard, they used this thing that was akin to fallow agriculture. Now, I don't think that that is a good model for everywhere, right? Like, so I wouldn't say that, oh yeah, well, all you need is a rotational closure system. But I do think there's lessons in in, in, in what we saw that, that are applicable, right? And so um, one, all of that was really underpinned by um, uh, property rights, right? So they had customary tenure, which allowed them to develop a creative solution that worked for their social ecological context, right? But that was really underpinned by their ability to exclude outsiders and enforce those rules. And that's enshrined in the Papua New Guinea constitution too, that people have customary ownership over, over the sea. And so, you know, I think that that role of property rights is, is, a, is a really critical one. Another key lesson was the critical role of participation and deliberation, right? So, you know, ultimately the chiefs made the decision, but they did it in a real deliberative system uh, where people got input and that was really, really critical. And, you know, I think that um, people may not have always agreed with the decisions, but they always agreed that they had a say, they, they got it off their chest and that, that was really important. And Jackie's, Jackie Lau's work, really doing the deep qualitative work on that really show the importance of that, 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 you know, we took it from an environmental justice perspective and, and people really felt like it was a just system, even though they might not have always agreed with the outcomes, they always felt heard. And, and so that was really uh, a really important lesson as well. And so, you know, I guess the, uh, the other ones that we did look at, um, they were, they were also actually leveraging social norms. Uh, and I, I didn't get into this earlier, but they've got a kind of compliance management system there, which um, works by, uh, you know, it's what I would call a carrot and a stick model there, right? And so um, uh, the, the carrot part of it was that people that, uh, younger uh, males that complied with the rules uh, and were generally had good behavior, were then allowed to access a highly regulated fishery. And that fishery was one where one man would actually hold a torch and 
hold a spear and be paddled around by a, another guy and flying fish would literally come out of the water and garfish and they would spear, they would harpoon these fish uh, while standing on the front of a canoe. And it was really, it's a very prestigious thing for that community, but not everyone can do it. And you have to undergo an initiation and only people that behave well can be, can be part of that. So that's kind of a, one of the, one of the carrots that they, they did. They also used, um, uh, social norms quite strongly so they would have these small community meetings and anyone that would poach in the protected area would get called out really strongly in these community meetings and it's a small place so so they were kind of you know leveraging social norms um, and creating incentives uh, for doing it and I think both of those are transferable lessons you know I wouldn't necessarily say that you'd want to do the same ones that they did but but I, I feel like that's a transferable uh, lesson as well. Um, and, you know, the last one, I think what we, we, what we touched upon was really the role of, of, of strong social networks. And, um, you know, I think the more, uh, the more I work with people like Michelle Barnes, the more I realize how important, uh, social networks are and the, and the role of kind of what the people around you do, um, how important that is in ways that we often don't even understand ourselves. And, um, you know, and so I, I, uh, I'm, I'm really awakening the importance of that. And I really do think that particularly in, in Karka, where there was the, there were these strong youth elder ties, I think that's really, really critical. And so, you know, thinking about ways where we can, uh, foster information exchange, particularly, you know, between generations, I think is absolutely critical. And it's something that we can, um, that, that, that is transferable. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I think some of these are malleable. Some of these are difficult. Like, you know, this notion of doing network interventions is kind of controversial, right? So so do we want to actually mess with people's existing social networks or do we just want to facilitate information exchange? So, you know, I don't know the malleability of that. Malle malleability of things like property rights, well, that, you know, that can be constitutional in some places. But, I you know, I think there are a lot of ways in which um, uh, people have, have, um, have been able to establish property rights. And so I think that that's a really exciting one. So I think most of these transferable lessons, there, there is a degree of malleability to them, right? They are things that, that people could actually do. And they're not just totally context specific, like they will only work in this one spot. I see, you know, we have kind of like a strategy and a tactics kind of level. And I see something like, for example, in the malleability space, something like Ostrom's design principles, right? I mean, what one reason one might say that they have been effective is because they're actually non-specific. I mean, they are specific yeah. in a way, but they can be generally applied and they don't say that you have to have a, a you know, a six month closure that's rotated and you don't have to have a specific catch rule and you don't have to have a specific types of property rights system. Rather, you need, you know, general, general processes, which can, the way that it manifests into a specific tactic or a specific rule or form in any case can be adaptable to the context. Do you see that we should focus more on looking at those general principles? Or do you think there's still a need to better understand the mechanisms, the specific rules in across cases, which will then lead us to extracting some of the general lessons? Look, I, I'm going to hedge my bets and actually say, I think both are really, really important. You know, I mean, Ostrom's work was absolutely foundational to much of, of, of my career. And so, you know, and, 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 you know, even more broadly, and I, I think that there's a lot of parallels, you know, in her work, which was kind of, you know, looking at success stories that really inspired me looking at the bright spots kind of stuff as well. So I think 
I think there is a need to really understand what are the generalizable principles, but then to, to really dig down as well and have people working on how are these applicable? In which contexts might these work? How what, what are the tactics in which they could be applied? Because, you know, I think, and I think a lot of that comes from working very closely with people in the NGO world who they don't just want the broad information. They want to know what to do in this place. And so, right. And so this is where these kind of partnerships become really, really important and digging down into the details and not just sticking at the higher level um, uh, uh, kind of strategies, but also getting the tactics is really important. It also leads to another question, and I do want to get to what your your upcoming work is going to be, particularly with your new grant, and perhaps also with the the National Geographic uh, the research. But maybe first, I see a lot of your work as or as, as you as someone who who can build research partnerships, and you have a lot of papers and research projects with very large teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would be interested in in your thoughts on how you go about the design of a project, who to get involved. Who, who are the types of people that you like to work with and, you know, perhaps also the benefit of large teams, but also the challenges of working together with, uh, you know, 20 plus co-author groups, for example. I I really love working in large, I really love working in interdisciplinary groups and, and you know, like I am a social scientist at my core and that's kind of, you know, that's in a sense my core business, but the bottom line is that's not what I'm that excited about. What I get really excited about is really, you know, crossing, uh, crossing interdisciplinary bridges and breaking out of the silos and, 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 and doing that deep interdisciplinary work. That's what really kind of gets me out of bed. Right. And, and yeah, I've really spent, you know, 15, 20 years uh, doing that. And, um, you know, so a lot of how I started doing that was simply by working with with ecologists like Tim McClanahan, you know, and we would just do it at a smaller scale. As my interests grew, and I guess as a geographer, my interest in scale uh, always had me thinking, how can we do this at different scales? And that was really important. Um, so I kind of wanted to scale out between, you know, just having a, a small team doing, you know, regional studies to doing more kind of global work. Um so how do you choose the right people? Well, that's the that's really the key question, isn't it? I think, you know, part of it, uh, maybe going back to the social network side of it, um, you know, I, I think a critical part for me is really the no asshole rule, right? And so uh, really, I want to work with great people. And, you know, and so even if someone's got a lot of data, if they've got a bad reputation, I'm just not really that interested in 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 collaborating with them i'd much rather collaborate with people that are really excited and really wonderful and uh you know we've got a limited time on this earth and we should uh we should work with wonderful people right and so so i think that's the the great part of it and so knowing you know using social networks to determine who's really worth inviting onto the project i think is really really critical um you know i was for a long time on um you know uh, multiple editorial boards so i felt like i had a good finger on the pulse for who was doing what too so i kind of knew what was out there and then i was kind of always trying to find out who's really worth working uh with and so um you know that's part of it how do you get people working together um you know i think that's a real um it's a challenge, but the ways that I've done it effectively, I think, are by doing both big pictures and small bites. And so people, some of the projects I've done take six years before you get the main output from it. And no one's going to stick around for six years uh, to do that. So you've got to have things that are coming out. You've got to have kind of a pipeline that leads to the big picture, but doesn't undermine it. 
Hmm. Right. So that takes some upfront strategy to kind of think through, okay, here's where I want to be at the end. How do I work backwards from that in ways that put the pieces together, but not in a way that's obvious for somebody else? Right. And so, so I, I kind of do that in the beginning of a project and then think, okay, so we need to work on this. And so for the, the bright spots work, one of the key things we had to work on was this, this metric of market, uh, potential market impact called gravity. And so I was working with people like David Mouillot, um out of, um, of Montpellier in France. And he had um, at this time a master's student. Uh, Ava Mare, and um, uh, she was an engineer, and uh, we ended up getting uh, getting her involved in this, and it was just amazing. She came down and uh, did her did part of her master's down here, and she was able to crack the code on on really uh, figuring out what what we were interested in is is how you could calculate the distance between a village or a city and a coral reef in a way that wasn't just using the, as the crow flies, but was mm. using the way that people would actually get there and trying to understand how long would it take to do this? What's the travel time to go between a market and the coral reef? And so she was able to kind of using different uh, uh, land use cover types, create these, the, 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 these basically a least cost route to get between a city and a, and a reef. And so you know, we mm. ended up publishing a couple of papers on that and that was a foundation for what we were doing, but no one would have known that, right? So, so having things like that going that keep people interested, get people involved, you're kind of testing some of the concepts along the way. And so that, that's been really critical to the success of these larger interdisciplinary projects where people, you know, they're not waiting six years for the first outcome uh, on it. And so, you know, a lot, like I said, a lot of these do actually take about six years. Maybe that leads then now into some of the work that you're building for the, I know you just received a, a new large grant um, and you also mentioned the the National Geographic project. What are those going to be about? Okay, so um, I'll start with the National Geographic one. And it's basically to go back, it's a follow-up study from that kind of, uh, the one I was just describing, that kind of 16 years of social and ecological data from, from that village in Papua New Guinea. And one of the things that we found in that paper was um, even though it's a bright spot and every time they close the reef off, they get a change in fish behavior, but they also get a bump in, in fish biomass. Mm. But what we found is the baseline from which it's bumping is declining over time. And so what we're seeing is, uh, you know, essentially this decline. So it's, it's getting a bump. But you know, so we're, what we want to do is find out, A, is is the level of fishing there sustainable? And B, how could that practice be modified in a way that is both socially and culturally acceptable, but also can allow populations to recover? So we're going to work with some, some, uh, some ecologists, develop a bioeconomic model, um, and use that to kind of test different scenarios. And these scenarios are going to be developed by the local community. So they're going to develop the scenarios. And what we'll do is kind of run it through the model and say, well, if you choose this one, here's the likely outcome. If you choose that one, here's the likely outcome. Um, and so develop ways in which we could kind of reverse this slow decline of the, the, the fishery resource on which they, which they depend. Uh, and so the other project is um, an Australian research council. Uh, so that's our equivalent of the, the NSF or the, the ERC. Um, uh, so it's called a laureate fellowship. And, uh, you know, I don't think it, I don't think there's an analog in the U.S. system, but in Europe, it might be a, an analogous to an advanced grant. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a career 
um, a grant that there's, you know, 16 or 17 of them given every year. That's it. So it's super, super competitive. Um, and so it's a, um, a 3.4 million Australian dollars, which is about 2.2 million US. But the big difference here is that um, overhead gets paid behind the scenes. So that's actually like two point, it's actually yeah. like 4.4 million in the US because they take over 50%, right, to begin with. So uh, so it's a reasonably large grant and it will allow me to develop a team. Um, I'll have three postdocs, four PhD students, a project manager. And what we're gonna do is build on the bright spots idea. And I got really inspired um, uh, uh, from, from some colleagues that, uh, that developed a conceptual piece talking about exceptional responders right and and so the work we did in bright spots was actually quite static we used a single snapshot in time and it, it, uh, this conceptual piece in um it was by post and gelman um in i think conservation biology and what they highlighted was in in medicine there's the it, particularly in oncology there's a, a a notion there's a small group a small minority of patients that will respond extremely well to, to things like cancer treatment. They may have, they may recover completely from that. And, uh, it, but most people don't. So what, you know, what, what this field of medicine does is find out what's going on and they examine the genome, the metabolome, the transcriptome, and really try to understand what's going on. And the classic example of this actually um, was that, uh, you know, the application transformed the way that, um, or helped transform the way that, that HIV AIDS was treated. And there was an exceptional responder, a guy that, um, was repeatedly exposed to HIV AIDS, but never caught it. And they tested his genome and found he had a mutation in his white blood cells that never allowed the, the, the virus to attack it. And they were able to mimic that mutation in, in a medicine. And that's been used to treat certain types of uh, cer certain strains of, um, uh, uh, of um, HIV AIDS. And so I wanted to, to move from the static snapshot approach from our, our bright spots to this more exceptional responders um, uh, work. And so the idea is to, um, well, basically when I published that Bright Spots paper, you know, it was like the cover feature of Nature, which was pretty exciting. A lot of people were like, oh man, I've got so much data from here, or you didn't include this region next time, you know, for your follow-up, contact me. So we actually kept track of everyone that wrote to us and wanted to be involved. And it's like 55 different scientists with 26, thousand reef sites all over the world from 65 countries and so what i've got funding to do is to compile all of these data and a lot of these over 3000 of them have multiple points in time right so what we can then start doing is looking at places that are behaving differently than we'd expect that are on different trajectories than we'd expect given the conditions that they're exposed to so we're placing and we'll use a single shock event so for example the the 20 16 global marine heat wave. We'll use that and look at which places responded differently to our, our kind of counterfactual uh, than we'd expect. What, what, what places responded differently to that shock? And we'll use modeling. We'll, we'll try to model that a uh, counterfactual as that and say, where are places that are deviating from this counterfactual significantly? And so that will be the first stage of it. And what we'll do is identify exceptional responders, will identify poor responders, places that respond terribly, they're doing much, much worse than you'd expect given the conditions they're exposed to, and then places that are doing just like the model would predict. And, and what the plan is, is to go into five, uh, conduct detailed field work into five exceptional responders 
five uh, average responders and five poor responders and kind of get at this notion of we're going to be testing some of the processes that are going on. So trying to get at some of the tactics, but also some of the um, uh, uh, some of the strategies as well. So what are the characteristics that exceptional responders have that 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 uh, poor responders don't? And what are some of the mechanisms that may explain that? Fascinating. I'm, I'm interested in how because you mentioned at the beginning how you design like teams to support early career researchers. So in terms of team design within your own projects, how do you think about that? The the proposal actually forces you to think about that very explicitly at the outset. So there's defined roles for everyone. And so, you know, there'll be um, a more senior postdoc who's going to be doing a, a, some of the heavier analytical lifting on that um, because it's going to be some really complicated spatiotemporal uh, analyses that are just to be fair beyond my pay grade for statistics. I, you know, I'm not. I wouldn't be able to, to actually write the code to do them. Uh, so um, I need someone younger and more ambitious to, <laughs> to do that. Um, so, but we'll we'll have a, um, a you know more of a senior postdoc for that. We'll have um, uh, two other postdocs that will be um, uh, focused on on various aspects of the social science part for when we go in and do the um, uh, the, the detailed field work. Um, each each PhD student, there'll be four of them. They'll each have a particular role and expertise. So one might do kind of that. The, we're going to be doing some behavioral um, uh, uh, lab in the field type experiments. So one person will be kind of in charge of that. Another one will do more sort of be in charge of more qualitative work. One will do sort of more quantitative socioeconomic work. That's kind of laid out. You know, you actually have to have that whole vision in your head and then figure out who's going to do each role and how they all fit into the big picture. And then hope that the funding uh, is that the funding that you get actually enables you to do that because they always cut some of the funding. So I think most many of us are aware of the kind of degraded state of coral reefs around the world and it seems that you have a, to some extent, positive look at some of the, the potential. I mean, the looking at bright spots, that narrative around the bright spots is very positive and the work that you're going to carry into this next uh, research project about outstanding actors or performers. I mean, this is kind of a, you know, I, I'd say it's very bringing a quite positive narrative into how we can shape our social systems to to be adaptive. And is that really uh, something that you you see is the, the narrative that we should bring into into that space with coral reefs, given their current state? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think we have to be realistic about the state of affairs on coral reefs and, and, and you know, um, uh, not not be not be naive about that. And, you know, if you look at the the general trend, it's it, it, it's pretty pessimistic. But, you know, as scientists and that's what we're trained to do, we tend to look at averages and trends. And that's really important from discerning the signal from the noise. But sometimes that that noise is important. Right. It's sometimes it's the outliers, the things that aren't following that trend that actually you learn the most from, right? And so that's kind of what I've been really trying to do is trying to understand, well, what are the places that are bucking this trend? And what can we learn about resilience from these places? Um, and so I, I, I do think that's an important lesson. And while we do need to be realistic about how the state of many ecosystems, not just coral reefs is, is are, are faring, we can also learn a lot from places that have defied that trend. Well, I really enjoy following your work and it's going to be exciting to see what comes out of this next project. Thanks, mate. It was a pleasure. The 
In Common Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. You can find more episodes or resources on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org.